Welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Vault Hill, Arabian Business and Najahi Events. So today's guest is a psychiatrist called Mark Goulston. Men's mental health, psychiatry, depression, anxiety is talked about with great frequency nowadays. But do we know how to handle it? Do we know how to understand ourselves, understand the relationships we have with the people we care the most? And do we sometimes have a bit more despair than we need to have. These are the areas that we're going to discuss today on the podcast. Let me tell you a bit about Mark first. Okay, he's Dr. Mark Coulston. He's a Marshall Goldsmith 100 coach member and coaches entrepreneurs, CEOs, chairs, managing directors to become the best version of themselves. He's also an international keynote speaker helping audiences to do the same. He talked to me about the relationship that I have with my father and with my daughters without me even telling him. I know that if you've got relationship issues or if you've got a relationship with family members where you struggle and you don't know how to deal always with how other members of your family are feeling, then this is a podcast episode for you. So let's cue the music, get stuck in, make some notes because this was a really beautiful episode to film. Vault Hill is the world's first human-centric metaverse that's opened its doors for brands and entities to launch their presence in the metaverse in only 48 hours. This is the fastest activation ever and the first time ever any metaverse has offered this. Upon this activation process, brands will receive free virtual land in Vault Hill City and can give life to their metaverse presence by buying buildings in the Vault Hill marketplace and deploy it on their dedicated V-Land. Then brands can customize their land using unbounded creativity, they can display their own NFTs or upload different media, logos or digital creations to start to capitalize from their digital assets. Go check out vaulthill.io. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. So Mark, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. Um, uh, there's so much that I consume of your content or have consumed of your content over recent time that makes me think that we're aligned uh, in a few areas and gives me, I get great comfort from that. And so I watched a video recently of you talking about people that are depressed and how you prescribed to them to go and spend some time with someone that was homeless identify themselves and uh, and essentially try and build a connection and, and give them some form of gift or, or food or whatever it may be, not money. Um, and then see how you would feel if you did that. And I work with a group of girls from Bangladesh that come from nothing, the slums of Bangladesh and have nothing. And I suffered severe depression, clinical depression some years ago. And I was prescribed all kinds of medication to take for this depression, but I resisted taking that, that medication. There was something about me that was saying no. And what helped me recover from that clinical depression and suicidal thoughts and almost suicidal behavior um, were these 12 girls from Bangladesh that gave me so much perspective on how lucky actually I was and how grateful I should be when I saw the pain and the suffering that they had been through. And so when I watched your video, I'm watching your video and I'm like, 
Okay, this guy gets this, he gets what I get, because I find it hard that people struggle with that. When to me now, and it's unfair probably, but I now see that as such an obvious cure for anyone that's feeling down, suffering anxiety, suffering depressive thoughts and feelings. Do you remember making that video? Yes, I was talking about how when I would see depressed people and I would drill down uh, and something I, I learned to do, uh, and I've since given it a name, surgical empathy, is uh, when someone is speaking to you and you repeat back what they said and you say, no, I understand life is tough, but what's really going on? And then they'll talk about something else. I learned this from a friend of mine who was the, uh, the chief operating officer of the Marines in the 1990s. He went on to be the CEO of the U.S. Intrepid aircraft carrier on the Hudson. And I was involved with him on a transition program for returning Marines from 2007 to 2009. And during that transition program, what the Marines said was the most valuable part of it was the hour and a half they got to spend with General Marty Steele. And I asked uh, General Steele, I said, Marty, what'd you talk to them about? He said, well, I use the five realies. And I said, what's the five realies? He said, well, you know, when you ask them questions and you say, what's really going on? If you keep going, even if they get annoyed, they're going to crack through that and tell you what's really going on. So I would see a returning Marine and I'd say, how's it going, Marine? That's how they talk to each other. And uh, and they'd say, well, you know, it's a little diff different being in the war than being in civilian life. And he'd say, well, I understand it's different, but what's really going on? Well, I'm not communicating that well with my family and, you know, and we get on each other's nerves. And yeah, I get that too, but what's really going on? And he'd get to the fifth wheelie. And when you hit the bottom, he said it was like deers in the headlights. And they'd look at him and they'd say, I, uh, I did and saw horrible things, sir. And when I close my eyes, I see them more vividly so I don't close my eyes much. And he would give them a direct order. Uh, if you've been an active duty Marine in a war zone, we've all seen and done horrible things. I'm giving you a direct order to put that aside. And he saved lives. And so uh, I followed his lead on the five really. So sometimes you're thinking to yourself, this is the longest tangent, get to the point, Mark. But uh, uh, but when I'd be with depressed people, sometimes I'd say, I understand you're feeling down and uh, frustrated, but what's really going on? Well, you know, uh, I don't know that I have anything to live for. I get that too, but what's really going on? And with more than a few of them, they, their rock bottom would say, uh, I don't care about anyone but myself. And I don't do anything or give anything to the world. I'm just a burden. So maybe I shouldn't be here because I'm totally focused on myself uh, and I'm self-absorbed. So what, what I would do with them is I'd say, here, here's a box of healthy snacks. And I'm in Los Angeles where there's no shortage of homeless people. And I said, every day when you see someone who's homeless, I want you to walk up to one of them, take the healthy snack out of your pocket, uh, have it with your hand outstretched before you go over to them. You don't want to scare them, but have it outstretched. 
Uh, and a lot of times people don't want to give anything to homeless people because they'll use it for drugs or alcohol and walk over to them uh, and, you know, be gentle, uh, but say, uh, hey, uh, my name's Mark. What's your name? They do have names. I mean, homeless people have names. A lot of people don't know that. And then after the person responds, uh, say, here, this might help. I hope it helps. And don't give up. Uh, and I said, do that once a day uh, to at least one homeless person. And what would happen is they would come back a week later, and I'd say, how'd it work out? And they'd say, it helped. <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes they would get this look from them. I remember even for myself, I was... You know, I, I tend to do a lot of thinking when I'm walking, and I was out for a stroll at night, and, and I saw one homeless person, and he wasn't begging, he wasn't intruding, but clearly he was in trouble, and he was dragging one of his uh, bedroom slippers behind him, and, and he clearly had a stroke, so his left arm was curled behind him. But he wasn't intruding on anyone's space, and to me there was a quiet nobility to him. So there I am in my self-absorbed reverie, uh, thinking of whatever I'm thinking about. And as I walk past him, I, just the, the nobility of just trying to endure his pain just stopped me. So I walked past about 20 yards, and then I stopped, and I came back. And I put a $50 bill in his, in his hand that worked. And he looked at it like this, and then he looked at me, and his eyes just watered, and he said, I love you. Best $50 I've spent in a long time. It's interesting, isn't it? In, in England, we have something called The Big Issue, which is a magazine sold by homeless people. Mm. And when I, when I see anybody selling The Big Issue, it says to me, you're trying. Okay, I know you're homeless, but you're trying, you're trying to make an effort, you're trying to improve your situation. And it may not be a big change, but at least you're trying. And when I see people try, I, I'm just compelled to make them or, or to try and help. And so whenever I'm in London and I see that, I will take 50 pounds out of my pocket and I'll give it to the big issue guy. And he'll be like, I haven't got change because he wants to give me the one of the magazines. Oh, I really haven't got change. And I'm like, I don't want any change. And he'll look at me and I'm like, I just want you to know that I appreciate the fact that you're trying. Mm. And for whatever it provides them, I'm my payment is tenfold. Okay, whatever. It, my payment will always be tenfold because it makes me feel amazing to be the person that's trying to help someone that's trying. How, how long have you been a psychiatrist? Since uh, 19... Well, I did my psychiatry training from 76 to 80. So okay. psych, I was psychiatry in training then and then psychiatrist since 1980. Okay, so 1980s now... Long time ago, okay, some 40 years ago, more than 40 years, has, has depression or the interpretation of depression changed over that period of time? Because I feel like it's used 
the term is used looser. I mean, I'm 52, so you know, I left I left school in the late 80s. I was at work in the beginning of the 90s. It, depression wasn't something that was talked about, and mental health wasn't something that was talked about. You know, the world I came from, you didn't talk about stuff, but you also didn't know. If, and if someone was depressed, generally they were they were some in hospital. But that's what I remember. And now it's like, and we've never had in the UK the whole thing like in America where people have a therapist. Now that kind of thing doesn't exist in England. I've got a therapist. You've got a therapist? Whereas here in America, if you don't have a therapist, it's a bit strange, you know, from what I interpret. So has it actually changed? Has, have we defined depression differently or society to make it more acceptable to be depressed or not? Well, I think more people seem to be willing to talk about it, and especially in America, the age of celebrity. And there's so many celebrities who have crashed and burned and uh, and they've fallen apart. But uh, as long as someone takes responsibility uh, inside all the cynicism that we see, there's a real desire to forgive people. But they have to go through the steps. So we've seen story after story after story of people who have crashed and burned and then picked themselves up. Uh, uh, there's a project I may be working on, and maybe we'll do a subsequent uh, program on this with someone whose name I can't mention, but uh, he has bipolar 2 disorder. And I'm going to educate you and your viewers a little bit as he's edu educated me. So he was a high-flying person, uh, and he's crashed and burned several times. And what he told me is, and here's the difference between bipolar 1 and bipolar 2 disorder. Bipolar 1, uh, when they're manic, they're, they're psychotic. So they're not very productive. They're just psychotic. They're delusional. Uh, and, and when they get depressed, it's more chemical uh, than it is for bipolar 2. So when bipolar 2 people... Uh, and I don't want to diagnose people, but there are certain people who have some of those features in plain sight, whether it's Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or whoever. Uh, when bipolar two people get depressed, they get more suicidal than bipolar one. The reason being is that when they were bipolar two, they're, they're productive, they're creative, they don't have to sleep, and they can go like this for months and years, and they're incredibly creative, and they can create a company, they can create a Tesla, a SpaceX, uh, an Apple, and it's all in plain view. But then if, since it is a bipolar disorder, if they flip to the other side, uh, the sense of humiliation is huge. See, if you're bipolar one and you're depressed, you're not really humiliated because there wasn't really anything that you did when you were manic. And, uh, and we think this is a real hidden uh, illness that's rampant amongst entrepreneurs because they go radio silent when they go depressed for bipolar two. Uh, and so what we're thinking of doing is making his story public because it's pretty well known. Uh, and it was interesting because uh, when he hit, when he was on top of the world, he, he was on top of the world. And when he crashed, 
you know, he was really the, the humiliation, the uh, lost marriages and all these things, uh, and the sense of his grandiosity just plummeted. And uh, we're hoping he'll give a TED talk, not a TEDx talk, but a TED talk. And, and I told him, I said, if you give a TED talk, uh, this is going to be the most important part of it. So if you see the TED talk, you'll say, oh, I heard that uh, on your show. Uh, what was a turning point for him? Because he, he got so down and so humiliated that he you know, wished he was dead. And he has uh, three young children. Uh, he's divorced again, but he loves his children. And he sat down with a friend uh, whose father uh, had died by suicide. And he said to his friend, geez, you're so strong. How'd you get over it? And his friend looked at him and said, you never get over it. And at that moment, he took suicide off the table because of the love for his children. You're getting this. What about this is landing for you? Because that's what happened to me. Say more. So I, I decided to take my life. Um, I'd talked myself into believing that my um, children would be fine. There was enough money for them, so they didn't have to worry. They had a stepfather that was a decent human being, and their mum was a good person. And I planned, I planned my suicide. I ended up in um, the Priory in, in the UK, and it was the conversations over five days around the impact my behaviour would have on my children my two daughters, that was the, the thing that stopped me making that decision ever again. And it wasn't like I recovered quickly or anything, but that was now off the table, like just exactly as you just described it. It, it was off the table because of the responsibility and duty I, I had to them that I would never, you know, I hadn't even, I hadn't even factored that into my thoughts beforehand, maybe because you don't think clearly, but once I was taught that, then that, that was, um, a big shift in me then trying to recover rather than trying to die. So after Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade died by suicide, mm -hmm. I wrote a blog. It's still up on Medium, Why People Kill Themselves. It's not depression. And I got 400,000 views in about two weeks because it's you know, a pretty edgy title. It's not depression. And what I talked about is that there's many millions, maybe billions of people that are depressed who don't kill themselves. There's people who lose marriages that don't kill themselves. There's people who lose their job that don't kill themselves. It can contribute to it. So tell me if this lands for you, because that was one of my specialties for 35 years. I, I focused on suicide prevention and none of my patients died by suicide. And wow. we can dig into that if you're interested. What I found to be true of nearly all of them is towards the end they felt despair. And if you break the word despair into DES uh, uh, hyphen PAIR, they feel unpaired. Mm -hmm. Unpaired with the future, hopeless, worthless, useless, meaningless, purposeless, powerless, helpless. And when they all line up, pointless. And they pair with death to take the pain away. Just like the sirens calling out to the sailors, I'll take your pain away. Just, just sail up on the rocks here. And knowing that they can always chuck it all, 
anyone who's been suicidal or been on more than a couple occasions uh, tucks it in their back pocket. They don't talk about it because they don't want to scare people. They don't want to burden people, but they know worse comes to worse. I can always end it all. And uh, what that taught me is they were pairing with death to take the pain away that nothing else would take away. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I, I've been trying to figure out, what the heck was I doing with these patients? And what I learned to do was pair with them in the dark night of the soul. Uh, and when they felt felt and not rushed into a treatment modality, and when they felt that I wasn't going to do a, a bait and switch and throw stuff at them, and they'd look at me like, you're not going to run away now? You're not going to throw stuff at me? They'd start to cry. And and the crying was the relief. A relief. And uh, so something else I want to share with you, because I, I was very fortunate when I did my training in psychiatry that when I finished a fellowship I was supposed to get uh, got canceled. So I figured, well, maybe I'll just go out, see if patients come to me. And one of my mentors was one of the top five pioneers in suicide prevention. He was at UCLA, and he was he was the suicide prevention what uh, 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 I'm forgetting these gurus. What these gurus were to such and such, uh, uh, and uh, and what would happen is he would refer me patients that other psychiatrist didn't want to see who needed to be discharged. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so he would call me on the phone. His name was Dr. Ed Schneidman. And he'd say, Mark, I'm here with this handsome young man. I'm with this lovely young woman. They're in pain, Mark. You could help them see them. So I was the vehicle for them to be let out. Mm -hmm. And it was good fortune that I wasn't in a fellowship or working for an ins institu uh, institution or institute because as I was seated with people, and I'll see if I can give you a taste of it even now as we're talking, as I was looking into their eyes, the more depressed they were, the more they'd be screaming out at me with their eyes, you're checking boxes and I'm running out of time because we had protocols. And if I worked at a uh, an institution, I'd have to check boxes. I'd have to make sure, you know, you know, make sure we're building the right thing. And they looked at me so intently that I had a choice, check boxes uh, or throw away the boxes and see where their eyes took me. And I had three experiences, pivotal experiences, where I learned to listen into uh, people's minds into their eyes and into their souls. And after that, psh, I was locked in. So where I learned to listen into people's minds, uh, when I was still in medical school, I had a rough time, and I don't know how much time we'll have, but uh, there's always a backstory. And I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I think it was for untreated depression. And someone... The, the dean of students who cared about students, I believe, saved my life. And so I just paid it forward. It's pretty simple. 
But in terms of listening into minds, I remember uh, when I uh, when I was in medical school, we would sometimes go on rounds, you know, and there'd be other doctors. And, and I was at a veterans hospital in Boston, and uh, we were discussing Mr. Jones, and I was probably in a depressed state, and so the other medical student, the other attending doctor, the resident, the intern, they're all, you know, uh, bantering with each other. I think he needs this. I think he needs that. And I was just kind of staring into space. And then a nurse comes over to us because we're outside his room. And I'm really just kind of, you know, sort of in my own mind. And, mm -hmm. and she comes over and she says... Uh, well, didn't you hear Mr. Jones jump from the roof? He's in the morgue. And they suddenly went silent. All the bantering stopped. And I heard a clear voice. I don't know where the voice came from, but the voice said to me, maybe he needed something else. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it, but mm -hmm. I think that's the moment when I thought, I'll somehow become a psychiatrist. And so, as I mentioned, I dropped out of medical school twice. The second time I dropped out, I went to a famous psychiatric institution called the Menninger Foundation, which was in Topeka, Kansas. It's now in Houston. And, uh, and, and I just wanted to get away from all the voices in my head, not hallucinations, but my parents, everybody saying, this is what you should do, you should do this, why are you doing that? You know, all the people questioning me and not really having a mind of my own. So uh, I've spent most of my life either in Boston or on the West Coast, so I went to Topeka, Kansas to just get away from all that. And this program that I was at was at something called Topeka State Hospital. And uh, it was in the middle of winter, and I just wanted to go and rest my brain. And so, uh, so we have time for these stories? Yeah. So um, uh, I remember I was, and I, I grew up outside of Boston. I don't know anything about farming. And in Topeka, Kansas, a lot of the schizophrenics were, you know, in those days, you know, from the farmland. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was seeing this one uh, young man who was catatonic. Uh, and in those days, I mean, he would just be like this all day long. And I was assigned him is, you know, to find out what I could about his family, find out what I could about him, and, and he, he didn't talk. And then I had this crazy idea, you know, because uh, even though he wouldn't talk, he would be very compliant. He would walk along with me, and we walked into a room where I would do my consulting. And I had this crazy idea. I, I stood up, and I said, um, I'm going to stand behind you, and you're going to fall, and I'm going to catch you. So I stand behind him, and, uh, and he was very cooperative, even though he was like this. And he fell six inches, and I grabbed him. Uh, and, then I, and then I let him fall a foot. I grabbed him. I let him uh, fall two and a half feet. I grabbed him, and, you know, and, you know, and he trusted me. He was like this. But because I'm a little bit crazy and I see things in a reciprocal way, I said, now I'm going to stand in front of you and you're going to catch me. And I'd never seen him move his hands. 
And so, and, uh, and I don't know what it's like in Britain, but there must be a linoleum company that makes the linoleum floors for state mental hospitals. They are harder than rock. It's uh, lino, yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's puke colored green. I mean, it's harder than rock. And I remember I stood up in front of him, and I'm thinking, I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die uh, because he's like this. And then I'm just thinking, what am I doing? But there was something inside me that had to do it. So uh, I remember when I put my arms next to my side, I closed my eyes, convinced that I was you know, just going to fall and crack my skull open. And I leaned back, and I fell about seven inches. And he was like this. And he lifted up his hands, and he held my shoulders. And then when he's holding my shoulders, I mean, I'd never seen him move his hands. I looked at him. And when I looked into his eyes, I saw a little bit of light. I saw something alive. And so, so that was another experience of learning to look, listen into people's uh, eyes. <clears throat> uh, but probably the most profound example of listening into people's eyes uh, was I finished medical school, and there I was at UCLA mm -hmm. training as a psychiatrist. And I was called up to the uh, oncology floor by the doctors for a patient who had this illness, and we didn't know what it was. Two years later, it would be diagnosed as AIDS. We didn't have a name for it. Yeah. And uh, they said, you have to okay the... Uh, the restraints on his arms and legs because he's pulling at his IVs, he's kicking at the rails, he, uh, he had a respirator tube in his throat, he's pulling at that. And so go up there and okay the restraints and okay the medication to calm him down. So this is my lesson in learning how to listen into people's eyes. So I walk into the room and we'll call him Mr. Smith. And I walk in the room and there he is in restraints and his eyes are big as saucers, and he can't talk because he has the respirator tube in his throat, and he's going, mm, mm, mm. and I say, what is it? And he tries to communicate. I'm saying, what is it? And he couldn't, he just kept moaning. Mm, mm, mm. I put a pencil in his, his arm. Here, write it down. He just scribbled it. And I just thought, well, they're right. He's psychotic. He's a uh, and I said calmly, you know, you were pulling at the IVs, you were kicking at the bed rails, you're pulling at the, uh, at the respirator thing. And so we had to put your arms and legs down. And I'm going to give you a medication so that you calm down. And when, you're, when you calm down, we'll take everything off. And he's not listening to a word. His eyes are like this. And so I just left. And then a day later, they paged me. And they said... Uh, uh, I keep mixing up Smith and Jones, but whatever this one is, uh, they they said Mr. Jones is uh, up. He's uh, uh, he's seated in bed. He's off the respirator. He's out of the restraints, uh, and he's seated in bed. And he told us to page you. So I go up to his room, and his eyes weren't as wide as saucers, but they were really firm, and like I'm holding onto your eyes. He could take my eyes, and he said, pull up a chair, and he didn't let go of my eyes. 
And he looked at me and he said, what I was trying to tell you is a piece of the respirator tubing was broken and stuck in my throat. And you do know that I will kill myself before I go through that again. Do you understand me? <laughs> and he wouldn't let go of my eyes until it's like I, I figuratively and literally cried uncle. My eyes watered up and I went, oh, I'm so sorry. I understand. And then he let go of my eyes and he said, good. I'm glad we understand each other. So that was listening into people's eyes. The third episode, Dr. Schneidman had referred me one of the most suicidal people I'd ever seen. She'd made three attempts previous, previous to my seeing her. She'd been in the hospital every year for two to three months, for four or five years. Back then, you could be in the hospital that long. It's much different now. And we'll call her Nancy. And, uh, and in those days, I used to moonlight, meaning I would... Yeah. Uh, cover for other doctors uh, at a state hospital in Los Angeles, Metropolitan State Hospital. And sometimes you're up 24 hours. You're covering for the doctors, you're admitting people, and you're a little bit exhausted. So on a Monday, Nancy comes in, and if you're me, this is her. She's not exactly catatonic, mm -hmm. but she's like that. As I was seated with her, Having not slept, I, I looked at her, and all the color in the room turned to black and white. So I'm looking at a room. So you looked at her, and all of the color in the room for you turned black and white. Yeah, yep. and I'm looking around, and it's all black and white. And then, and then I got cold and chilled, and I, and I thought, oh, I'm having a stroke or a seizure. Uh, and so I did a neurologic exam on myself. So I'm a psychiatrist. We're trained in various things. So it wasn't rude. She was like this, and I'm going like this, you know, seeing if I see double, touching my elbows like this, and I'm all here. And then I realized I'm not having a stroke or seizure. Then I had this crazy idea. So this is the listening into souls. So we had the listening into the mind of the person who jumped, the eyes of those patients, and this is the souls in the dark night of the soul. And I had this crazy idea that I was looking out at the world through her eyes, feeling what it felt like to her. So because I was sleep-deprived, I blurted something out to her that normally I wouldn't say. I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad. And I can't help you kill yourself. But if you do, I will still think well of you. I'll miss you, and maybe I'll understand why you had to to get out of the pain. And I thought to myself, I just gave her permission to do it. <laughs> did I think that or did I say that? And I, I thought to myself, I just said it. I just gave her permission. And that was the first time she really looked at my eyes. And, and again, she, she was kind of hesitating, and then when she looked at me, she grabbed onto my eyes like I'm grabbing onto yours. And I thought, what are you thinking? And I thought she was going to say, if she was going to speak, thanks for understanding, I'm overdue. And I looked at her, and she said, if you can really understand why I might have to kill myself to get out of all the pain, maybe I won't need to. 
Wow. And then she smiled. And then I grabbed onto her eyes. And I said, here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to give you any treatment that's been tried before that didn't work unless you initiate it. You might say, you know, years ago I tried this. It seemed to help a little bit. But I'm not going to uh, throw meds at you unless you ask me to. Would that be okay? And so we're locking eyes like I'm holding onto your eyes. And, and she sort of nodded, uh-huh. And then I reversed the, uh, the uh, energy, and I held onto her eyes for dear life. And I said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to find you wherever you are. And when I find you, I'm going to keep you company for as long as it takes. Because I just don't want you to be there all alone. Would that be okay? And her eyes started to water. Wow. Now, some people who are listening and watching, you know, maybe you'll be impressed by that or something, and they'll say, well, you can do that. You know, you're, you know, what about us regular people? So I think this would be a good time for me to give tactics as I'm giving now, because uh, uh, I'm, atta I'm attached to a program I need a better word than I'm excited. Because uh, it. Uh, Something you're excited about and you want to use a better word than excited. Yeah, and I'll tell you. Uh, as is. in, uh, yeah, a better word as in a better meaning or a more enthusiastic excitement. Well, you'll, you'll hear what I'm excited about. So, so for 25 years, I've been looking for a way to change the conversations between parents and their children. Uh -huh. Because at least in America, they're much too transactional. You know, uh, did you do your homework? Uh, uh, is that all you're going to eat? Uh, are you going to get off your iPad? Uh, and then the kids push, push back. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that underneath the kids acting out, there's a lot of pain. But the kids don't trust their parents with that pain because what they experience from their parents is frustration. And what the kids feel is, I'm just a source of frustration. I'm just a burden to my parents. You know? and, what it, and what they don't know is they're scaring the parents, but the parents don't show fear. They show frustration. Mm -hmm. and, and it's locked like this, and kids are not just falling through the cracks in America. They're jumping through them. It's epidemic. Mm -hmm. So a very good friend of mine, he's become a friend, is a fellow named Jason Reed. He's a serial entrepreneur, uh, has started and lost 25 businesses. He's a black belt. He's a, uh, a renaissance man. He's a musician. He's written books. He's very successful. And his 14-year-old son died by suicide four years ago. And his son left a suicide note called Tell My Story. So there's a documentary uh, on Amazon Prime called Tell My Story, and Jason went up and down the West Coast talking to experts, and that's where we met. I'm one of the experts in the documentary, and he talked to parents, he talked to teenagers, he talked to friends of people who uh, committed suicide, uh, talked to treatment programs. Uh, but what he discovered is that the most powerful part of that documentary 
was when he talked to teenagers about their low points. Uh, they weren't currently in crisis because if they were currently in crisis, they wouldn't have been shooting this because uh, they would have been off to the emergency room. So he recently finished a, a film called What I Wish My Parents Knew because it's what he wished he'd known but was too late. Yeah. And he interviews 10 teenagers, and there's a green screen behind them, and he basically has them talk about their low points. Um, they're not in a crisis now, and the teens are so honest, vulnerable, uh, not complaining, not blaming, not making excuses. That's critical because one of the things that drives parents crazy is when kids seem to complain, yeah. blame, or make excuses because you feel like they're trying to avoid something yeah. or they're wiggling out of something. Yeah. And so it, it triggers parents into thinking, stop lying to me. Yeah. Stop BSing me. You know, and then what happens is the parent escalates and the kid escalates and they don't tell you what they're feeling underneath it all. So when you hear these 10 teens, when you watch them, just calmly talk about their low point. Yeah. Uh, when parents see this, and it's going to be shown to parents and maybe parents and teens at high schools and junior highs, after you watch 45 minutes of this, parents go back to their children, and the parents are tearing up, and the kids are saying, what's the matter, Dad? What's the matter, Mom? And what the parents are saying is, I, I just realized how much I love you. And these kids don't talk about suicide because what we discovered is talking about suicide is too scary. They're just talking about mental health. But what you're realizing is that pain underneath it all that never gets expressed. And we see this as a catalyst for flipping the conversation with your child. I just did a presentation with him last night, Jason, uh, to a group called EO, which is Entrepreneur Organization. It's a younger version of YPO, Young Presidents Organization. Yeah. So we, uh, we just did a presentation last night. And I, I asked the audience, because uh, I, I said, I think what's mesmerized me about this film is the following. Uh, I, I asked the audience, raise your hand if the number of times that you had a completely raw, open, vulnerable conversation with your mother or father, but especially your father, raise your hand if the number of those in your life so far is less than five. 70, Every, everybody. Nearly everybody. And I said, and I, and I shared this, I said, you know, I remember three times with my dad, and he died in 95. And the last time is when uh, he had Alzheimer's, and my mother had called me to fly from California to Florida to see if I could just get him to take a walk, because he was just making her crazy, making himself crazy. And my father was someone who uh, was... Uh, not very introspective, you know, a good guy, hardworking guy, but not very introspective. And, uh, and it was interesting because uh, I was there three days trying to convince him to go for a walk, 
trying to convince him to do anything, convince him, let's do a puzzle together. Yeah. And the night before I was about to leave, he looked at my mother and he looked at me and then he looked at me again and he said, do me a favor, don't visit again so soon. Both of you get off my back. So I had failed. You know, you know, big fancy doctor comes cross country, I had failed. So the next day, uh, before I'm flying out, I, uh, I'm sitting on the porch with my father, and he's just staring out. There's a golf course in the distance, which he used to play on, and he's just staring. And, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, you messed up. You failed. And this was 1995, and I was reading the galley's copy of my first book, which is an evergreen. It's called Get Out of Your Own Way. It seems to be an evergreen, published in 1996. Uh, all of my books, none of them were bestsellers out of the gate, but that one, 26 years later, it was on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list <laughs> six months ago. 26 years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I, so people are finding out about these books and they seem to like them. So I'm reading the chapter in Get Out of Your Own Way, which is about self-defeating behaviors. And there, there's my father. He's looking out. And I'm just thinking, I, I failed. And I'm reading the chapter that says, uh, trying, to take, uh, uh, trying to change others. And so each of the chapters is three pages, mm -hmm. and they're easy to read. And they have what's a usable insight at the end to think about. So the usable insight at the end of that, I believe it's so old, is uh, don't try to change others. Accept them as they are and hope they change instead of not accepting them at all until they change. So I read that. I look oh, at that's my... quite, Hold on, that's quite profound when you think about that, because that's, as you say that, that makes a lot of sense, but it's not common sense, is it? Oh, yeah, right. And so, and so I read that, and I think to myself, this book could do well. <laughs> <laughs> and then I look at my dad, who's not looking at me, and I said, why don't you practice what you preach? So I put the book down. So instead of trying to be convincing, my tone was really inviting. And again, I told you, he's not an introspective guy. Mm -hmm. He's got Alzheimer's. And I looked at him and I said, hey, Dad, how you doing? Hear the tone? How you doing? Yeah. I'd never seen him cry before and he looks at me he looks down he looks at me he looks down and then his eyes start to water and he says I never thought it would turn out this way and this was the guy who my mother told don't tell him he has cancer 20 years earlier you know he has that old mentality about you know diseases and so that just stunned me when he said that. And then he looks at me, and he's trying to concentrate, and he's, not, and he's having a hell of a time. And he looks at me, and he says, what is Alzheimer's disease? And I look at him, and I say, well, you know, you can't remember something five minutes ago. You can remember something 60 years ago. And then I'll never forget, he's just scrunching his face together like this. And he says, 
do I have it? And I said, I don't know. Uh, you had a photographic memory. I don't know. And then we went for a walk. But can you see the power of mm. of that? And uh, I'm I'm sat here as you're talking, thinking about my relationship with my dad. Obviously, as as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm making comparisons in my own mind. Uh, and uh, and so why so why I'm excited about this teen film is that it's 45 minutes of 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 not. Not crying, not overly emotional, but just raw vulnerability. And we're really excited about it. Are you excited about it because there's not enough of that kind of stuff out there anymore? Everything is smoke and mirrors. Well, what I'm excited about is uh, the parents will watch this video and they'll see their teen in the video. Mm -hmm. They'll see someone like their teen and they will go home and they'll be aware of the pain underneath mm -hmm. that's driving the outward nasty behavior. Mm -hmm. And they will, and instead of knocking heads with their teenager, they'll let it go. Do you think there's a period, and I, I have two daughters, one is 20, one is 23, and I was told by my mum that at a certain point in your life, they're going to leave you and they won't need you, but then they'll come back to you. Mm -hmm. And so my youngest is in her last year of college. My eldest is out of college. She's graduated now. The connection I have with them now is really strong. Probably the best it's ever been considering mm -hmm. I've lived overseas for many years. Um, and I feel like we understand each other better now and are, are both considerate of each other where that never used to happen mm -hmm. um, or there was a period of time and there were two different styles of parenting. There was my ex-wife and her style of parenting and my style of parenting, which again comes from our own experiences that was very different. And um, when you talk about the relationship that we have with our kids the most important thing is to have a great relationship with them, you know, mm -hmm. because that deals with so many challenges in your life. It gets you over so many hurdles in your life. If you know that, you know, you and your kids are strong. I've known when, when I, even whether we were strong or not in the past, if I felt that we weren't strong, it would bring out all kinds of insecurities in me. Mm -hmm. You know, where did I go wrong? What have I, what mistakes have I made? How could I have been better? And, you know, I've let them down and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so I'm glad that you're excited that you're going to be doing stuff like that. And for that to come out, it matters to me that I think parents need to be educated better than they are. I think every parent goes about it with the only experience they have, which is from their parents and maybe what they've seen here, there and everywhere. But where's the... Where's the how to be a good parent school? Where's the where's the, the top tips on how to be a good parent and in consideration of your of your child? And obviously at different stages of their lives, the kids are very different as well. Well, I want to give you a few tips because uh, I think listeners here 
thank you for allowing all these tangents. And if you're watching this and you're listening, thank you for watching and listening and allowing them. Uh, uh, I, I gave a talk in Moscow. Uh, I was a main speaker with a fellow named Daniel Kahneman. He, run the, he won the Nobel Prize for Thinking Fast and Slow. So five of my books are bestsellers in Russia, and we spoke to a thousand Russians, and I was one of the speakers, and he was. And one of the things I've been trying to teach the world, starting with that audience, is that, uh, and if you can build this muscle, it will change everything for the better, is that whoever you're, you're in a conversation with, underneath they're listening to you, they're listening for something. And if you can just be curious without even knowing what they're listening for, and you're there to serve it, they'll lean in towards you. That's profound on its own, though, as you say that. They're listening for something. Yeah, and, I'll, and I'll demonstrate it with you. Okay. okay? So, because uh, I can feel you're listening on both levels. So, for many... I'm a guest on a lot of podcasts, and a number of podcast hosts, you know, want to be sure that they cover, you know, they, they read up on some of the stuff that I've done, and they want to check boxes, and they're listening to me for their answers, and, and, uh, and that's okay, and, uh, and I can give information, but what I'll sometimes do with the host is I'll say, let me see if this is what you're listening for underneath your listening to me. Uh, you want to honor the trust and confidence of your viewers and listeners in giving you the gift of their time. And the last thing you want to do is waste their time. So you're listening for guests who will give them value for the gift of their time so you can honor their trust and confidence in you. You're also listening for guests who turn out to be awful. They might have number one best-selling books, and you're saying, I can't, I, I can't release this. I can't do this to my audience. They are so awful. Jeez, they may be number one, but you know, who booked this person? And, and because you're, you're listening for someone that you have to protect your audience from because they're just so god-awful. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, and so, I, so I'm sensing that that's what you're listening for. So if I shift to your audience, uh, if they haven't fallen asleep yet because of all my tangents, <laughs> I'm, I'm halfway asleep. I'm, I'm with, I can sleep while I'm talking. That's really interesting. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think what some of them are listening for is give us some tips. Uh, I'm worried about my spouse. I'm worried about my kid. Yeah. Uh, you know, clearly you've had a long career. Clearly, you know, you're an expert in this area, but I'm, I'm just, I'm just Joe dad or Mary mom. And so here's some tactical tips that I give whenever I have a chance. Uh, and I'd like you to try it even with your children. You could say, we had the shrink on the show. I told them I'd do this. I don't want to get in trouble. Uh, and uh, when you do this exercise, do it while you're doing an activity, while you're driving or something, because teenagers can't stand heart-to-heart -heart talks when you initiate it as the parent. 
face to face, oh, face, yeah, to face over it, coffee. It is yeah, yeah. nails on a chalkboard. Trust me on this. If they initiate it, drop everything, of course. But if you initiate it, don't do it. But if you're in the middle of an activity, this is this is the script yeah. of it. You can say, hey, honey, uh, you know, a lot of parents are worried about their kids. You know, the pandemic or the school closing, the school opening, the lost classes, you know, all the stress. And, and I'm worried about you. Can I just run some things by you just to sort of ease my mind a little bit? Would that be okay? Hopefully they'll say, okay, Dad, what is it? And here are the four prompts. The first one, and you're doing an activity, but you don't get melodramatic the way I get. Of course, I'm in California. That I get yeah. away with it. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I also get away with it because they film the movie super bad in my house. Okay, so so I, I've got to do this with your technician. Uh, put a put a four prompts, but we got to put a book holder in it because the technician said, "Oh my God!" Because when I speak to millennials. Uh, one of my ways of introducing myself is to say, it won't impress you that I was a suicide prevention specialist for many years and nobody killed themselves. No, 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 no. It won't impress you that I've trained FBI and police hostage negotiators. No, 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 no. What will impress you is that they filmed the movie super bad in my house. <laughs> in fact, they filmed the last 15 minutes, and you may not remember it, but your technician does. And there was this character named McLovin, this character who finally gets, if I can use the word, laid. Uh, and, and he's sitting on our bed, and my wife said, they weren't supposed to use our bedroom. I said, well, I'm glad someone's using it. And, uh, uh, and there's McLovin, and Seth Rogen's to his right, and Bill Hader's to his left, before they became superstars. And so they're... Uh, it's the end of Superbad, and they're filming uh, the last 15 minutes at our house. And here's a side story. Uh, there was this app called Clubhouse. Yeah, which, I know. You know. I still which, use it. Yeah, which got really big, you right. know, and, uh, you know, they got greedy. They got, uh, you know, they could have sold it for a billion or two billion, uh, but they said, oh, we want more, so now nobody cares. And, and if you know anything about Clubhouse, you have a picture, mm -hmm. you know, up there. And so I had a picture of McLovin you know, sitting on my bed. That was my picture in Clubhouse. And people said, you better take this down. You look like a child molester. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's a different picture. But anyway, tangent uh, back. So if you're listening in, that, that was a comical interlude in the, in the trade. Um, uh, so here are the four prompts. The first one is you, you say, and I want you to do this with your kids and say, I promise to do this homework. With an activity. Uh, an activity. You say, at, at its absolute worst, at its absolute worst, how awful are you capable of feeling about your life or yourself? That's the first prompt. At, at your absolute worst. Yeah, the, at the most painful, uh, how awful are you capable of feeling about your life or yourself? Pretty awful, Dad. And here's a little taste of surgical empathy along with the five reallys. Uh, pretty awful or very awful? Okay, Dad, very awful. And then you have them talk about it because you want them to... Oh, tell me about that. Second prompt. When you have felt that, how alone did you feel? Pretty alone. 
pretty alone or very alone? Okay, Dad. Okay, can you put a sock in it already? Yeah, very alone. Okay, well, tell me about that. Third prompt, take me to the last time you felt that. What? Or WTF? <laughs> you say, yeah, take me to the last time you felt that. And something magical happens is if they can describe the last time they felt it so clearly that you can see it with your eyes, they refeel it. Yeah, I couldn't fall asleep. I, I yeah. Yeah, no one happened. We, I heard you walking around upstairs. Well, I didn't know whether to kick the wall or punch the wall or look for cough medicine. Then what happened? You know, I had a test the next day. I, I didn't know whether to just pull my hair out or something. And then what happened? Sun rose. Uh, and so you want to pull that all out of them. And then here's the fourth and most important prompt. And if you're fortunate, you'll have earned the right to eye contact. And you say, look at me, honey. And they'll look at you. And hopefully they won't be mouthy by this time. And you say, I have a favor to ask you. When you're feeling that way or even heading down that road, I want you to do whatever it takes to get your mom or my undivided attention. Because we got a million things going on in our head. And there's nothing more important than helping you feel a little less alone when you're feeling that way. And another thing, it's not a burden. Your feelings are not a burden. Uh, in fact, you can say crappy things. You can say mean things. You can say whatever you want to say. And I'm on your side for life. And my proof to you that what I'm saying is true is one of these days, if you have children, and if you're more fortunate than I am that they opened up to you, that won't be a burden to you. So did you get those four prompts? Yeah. As, as just again, as you tell that stuff, I just think about the activity, the, the location, the conversation, the WTF. It's like, hmm. You think about that with our kids, don't we? Can I hit you with another? Uh, uh, I just want you to. I just want to stay on that point for a second yeah. because I think that when I when I consider my daughters, I would think one of them, which I won't name, would think that her feelings are a burden. Say more. I just think that she would feel that telling me if if her back was against the wall and she was in a tough situation or she wasn't feeling fabulous or fantastic or even okay she'd she'd have str struggle sharing that with me yeah she'd she'd battle to share that with me not because they can't but maybe because she's uncomfortable doing that well, if you want to go a level deeper, because, you know, we're going wherever this takes us. Hold on a second. Have we got time? 
Yeah, okay. You want to go a level deeper. So I'm going to channel that daughter of yours. Uh, Dad, one of the reasons I don't tell you that, or one of the reasons I'm uncomfortable is that uh, I don't want to reveal my deepest, deepest scary feelings and see that you can't do anything about it. And then I'm screwed. So I'm afraid that if I share how afraid and powerless I feel with them and you don't know what to do and the answer, Dad, is not, well, let's find you a therapist. Uh, I don't want to share my worst feelings and then come up with you not knowing what to do. So this is all at our unconscious level. Uh, but here's, the, here's what you can do. And you might even say, you know, I've been trying to figure out why you don't open up to me. And I think maybe one of the reasons you don't open up to me is that if you really told me how bad it can get for you, that even if I have good intentions, I won't know what the hell to do. And then you'll, and you'll say to yourself, damn, why did I open up? He doesn't know what the hell to do. Uh, so in case you're worried about this, uh, I do know what to do. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to look you in the eye and I'm going to say, I've got you. I've got you. And I'm not letting go. And take as long as you need, but heal from the inside out. What? Yeah, you've been carrying this around a long time. I don't want you to just cope when you can heal from the inside out. So I've got you. And if it gets scary, I'm in it with you. Mm. You know, so, so let go of the need to solve it. Mm. So I see that we have limited time. So can I, can I drop the most profound thing on you that and this is going to push everything else away? Go for it. I collect quotes. And I got some doozies that you'd say, oh, we'd settle for any of those. That'll be another episode, or we'll post them on, in the comments section. A friend of mine is a Dr. Shawnee Duperon, and she uh, has a company called Project Forgive. And she shared a quote with me that knocked everything I've collected in 40 years off the table. And we can end on this because it's so profound. She said, forgiveness is accepting the apology you will never receive. Forgiveness is accepting the apology you will never receive. And I'll share how I used it, and then we can call it a day, or, you know, we can, you know, push, push the next guest back. Uh, go get an espresso. It's getting late. Uh, as soon as she told me that. Say it again. Just say it again. Forgiveness is accepting the apology you will never receive. Yeah, it's a big sigh. Here's the example. I heard that. I thought of my father, who could be a little bit on the critical side, a little bit on the downside. A uh, good guy, worked hard, but never got any of us. Uh, and 
I constructed this apology from him that I never got. He died in 95. One of the things he used to say to my brothers and me is, what makes you think you know anything about anything? Not the most complimentary. Yeah, I And so here's the apology I never received. Uh, dead dad to Mark, dead dad to Mark, uh, Remember when I used to say to you, what makes you think you know anything about anything? I was talking about myself. I know about numbers. And I felt confident about numbers, but I didn't know about a lot of things. And you, especially you, had a lot of creative, crazy ideas, you know, that were way beyond numbers. And it made me nervous because you were talking about something that I knew very little about, and rather than finding out about those things, like emotionally connecting to my family, you know, I, I didn't find out about those things. And so when I said, what makes you think you know anything about anything, I was talking about myself and what you have done with your life. What you have done by pursuing some of those things that I put down. I don't deserve you as my son. I mean, you're much better than what I deserve. And I'm so proud of what you've done for the world. I'm sorry. And I know he would say that to me. And when I heard him say that to me, I learned the other part of apologies. You haven't, you haven't really forgiven someone until you apologize to them for holding a grudge. And I said, you know... I'm sorry that I had a chip on my shoulder about that. I mean, I'm a shrink. I should have known better, and I didn't. And you did the best you could. And I know that's exactly what you, if you were alive, what you would want me to know. And I know it now. So I want you to rest in peace. It's beautiful, courageous. I will listen to this episode many times to get myself into a place and i hope that you guys that are watching this and everyone that's listening at home you can feel what i feel right now because this is it took me on a journey and it's now taking me to an education and a process and it's it's almost like i want to get up out of the chair right now and get on a plane and go and be with my daughters and then i want to then go see my dad and and do that right now he's old but we'll go and do that right now interesting mark thank you so much for taking the time to come and join us today i mean you've just dropped in these gems and this really valuable information and i really appreciate your time well thank you for having me and and if i looked fidgety in my chair it was that double shot espresso <laughs> <laughs> Yo,